I love the beautiful prayers of the saints and the beautiful voices of the saints. Mornings like this are very sweet when we get to hear everyone, and uh, it just reverberates throughout the building. And now we open God's Word, and yes, uh, we're going to continue in 1 Timothy. If you're here for the first time, uh, we work through books of the Bible, verse by verse, section by section, um, and we don't skip over the hard parts. Uh, If you know me, I like to lean into the hard parts. So this morning, we're going to lean into the hard parts. Uh, And we've probably reached one of the most debated texts in all of the New Testament. I read a lot of commentaries this week, and even the the most conservative biblical commentators uh, struggle and really don't, don't always disagree on this particular text, especially when we get to verse 15. So, admittedly, this is a difficult text with our cultural sensibilities. And uh, it is controversial because this topic here, to even make a distinction between men and women and differing in roles between men and women, flies in the face of everything that our modern world tells us. And so, for, for the members of this, this church, the members of the body of Christ, um, this may not be too radical. But for some of you here this morning, this may make you very uncomfortable. And I hope it does, because as Jesse said, we always must measure ourselves against the word of God. And so with that, we're not going to make excuses for, we're not going to apologize for God's word, we're going to state what God's word says. And it's in the context of the book and in the context of the whole counsel of God. So we'll look at some um, cultural issues and some uh, ethical issues. But all that being said, this is probably going to be my least uh, politically correct sermon, and that's saying something. So, um, and then, so here's what's, what's difficult about 1 Timothy. Paul's writing to real people in Ephesus, a real church, with real problems. But he doesn't give us an ecclesiological manual. Okay, what, what, is, what does that mean? So ecclesiology is the uh, doctrine or practice or study or discipline of what happens in the church. Paul doesn't say, show up at this time, do this in this order, and he doesn't lay everything out. And so we kind of have to read between the lines of the dysfunction and the health of the church in Ephesus to pull out principles that, that, that do not change, principles that are for the people of God in all times and all places, and we also have to be able to distinguish between uh, cultural settings. And so, like we dealt with false teachers a couple weeks ago, there's some problems with women in this church. We'll see more of that in chapter 5. And so, I won't be able to answer every question. We can't. Uh, But many, many we we will answer, we will address. Uh, But I want to give the best understanding of what Paul's trying to say, uh, really what's what's the the purpose of this whole section, what we can learn from it. And so, if you notice in your your outlines, there are plenty of cross-references because I don't want you, uh, I do want you to be turning there, but I don't want you to get... Uh, caught in writing them all down because I am just scratching the surface on cross-references. So if you're here for the first time, if you're not a Christian, uh, this is good for you to be here. This is a family discussion, and we need to have these. Um, I think in in many churches, they just like to have the uh, soft, easy conversations, but if you're in a family, you have to have the difficult conversations too. Because we, we, have, we have questions. We hear one thing in church, we see another thing in the culture, and the church has to have an answer for these. So if you're here, this is a family discussion, and we're going to lean in. And the reason why there are so many cross-references, there aren't always that many, 
is because if we have a question of Scripture, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. We deal with the difficult text in the Bible from other texts in the Bible, which help illuminate the ones that are more difficult. So we're always going to look at the whole counsel of God. So, But before we get into that, uh, I do want to address some of the, the, the cultural situations, uh, con- cultural considerations that need to be addressed before we can interpret this passage rightly. So, whenever a book of the Bible is written, there is always a cultural context that is understood. There, is, there are things going on in the lives of the reader that are particular to the reader. And so we, we need to understand, is this a book of poetry? Is this a book of history? If there's writing to a church, if there's correction, what are the issues within the church? What are the, the issues of the day? Because the biblical writers are writing to real people in history, re- dealing with real problems. And so uh, it is important that we don't force our own cultural context onto them. And it's also important that we don't ignore theirs. So, for instance... If you were to ask the question, what is a woman? We're going to talk about women a lot today. This is a completely benign question that two, five, ten, a hundred, or two thousand years ago, everyone would be able to answer. But in our day, it confounds scholars. So, we, we got to be careful that we're not reading our problems in our circumstances into the text. Let's deal with what they're dealing with. Um, So when we read, we must be able to discern the substance from the setting. The substance is the the theological heart of the text. The setting is the occasion that brought up the commentary, the, the commands, and the correction from the apostle. So we don't dismiss the setting, but we don't elevate the setting either. And so this takes a lot of discernment. And so when we read a text like this, many questions arise. Well, are men sinning if they don't raise their hands in prayer? Are women sinning if they wear jewelry? Should women speak at all? So we're going to look at um, prescriptive biblical ethics. This is what the Bible prescribes. This is what is for all people in all times. Versus um, descriptive cultural practices. See the difference? Prescriptive biblical ethics. What is right and wrong in the house of God for all times. Versus descriptive, what is, what, is, what is a cultural practice that is described as an example for all times. Everybody good so far? All right, so I'm going to pick up in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. I'm going to read verses 8 through 15, and we will work through this together. Paul says to Timothy, the young elder in Ephesus, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and gracious to us. You are awesome. In all of your ways, we need your wisdom and your instruction to help us in our text
Uh, we admit that we are frail and we are easily influenced. And so often the world around us shapes our thoughts and our affections and draws us away from you. Lord, may we look at your word and humble ourselves before it. May we seek to honor you, not to complain or disparage how you made us, but to praise you as man and praise you as woman. That in our manhood we would reflect you and glorify you. And in our womanhood we would reflect you and glorify you. Because we are one in Christ Jesus. And while we are here, in his church, in his name, you have given us structure and order and direction to exalt his name, not our own. And we look forward to the day when we all stand unblemished in glory with him, when the tears are wiped away, when the pain is gone, when the confusion is erased, when death is no more, we stand in glory with our Savior, all will become clear. But until then, we humble ourselves under your word that you might be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we jump into this, um, we can't forget what's going on in Ephesus. Uh, before we get into chapter 2, look at chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things. So here's Paul's purpose. So that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So while this is not a manual per se, meaning step one, step two, step three, step four, this is directions for local churches. This does have in mind that a church has order, a church has structure, a church has what is proper and honoring to God and what isn't. And so uh, all of chapter one really dealt with uh, doctrine and, and false doctrine and we kind of laid the groundwork where the gospel, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, his deity, his humanity, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his ruling reign over all things, that's the foundation of everything else. And when we have that, that makes a church. And out of that church, we pray. We looked at last time, we pray because we have this Savior who's also a mediator, who goes before us, before the Father, who ever lives to intercede for us, who sent the Spirit to teach us how to pray. And so he begins the chapter with first of all. And we can almost open our section here with second of all. Last time we looked at praying for everyone in, in all places because we desire that all peoples would be saved. Every kind of, of person, no one is above the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we kind of get into more particulars, not in a general evangelistic missional sphere, but now in a particular sphere. So uh, Paul kind of narrows in a little bit. And he says, I desire, verse 8, that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Okay, so we need to pray. Here, Paul says, here's how you pray. So four main ideas here, and then we'll talk about what we can learn. Number one, I desire that in every place, prayer is assumed. We pray. We are a people who get to go before the throne of God. So how could we neglect that? Every place. The gathering of the saints is incomplete without prayer. 
and I would argue every home as well. That we are people marked by the word of God and prayers before our God. So in every place, so Paul's not making a distinction here between what happens in the home and what happens in the church. There's not one rule for this city or this, this city in every place that men should pray. Men, if you're in a Jewish context, this, is, uh, this goes without saying that men lead in homes, men lead in, in worship, but now you've got Jews and Gentiles coming together. And now there is a message that men and women are one within Christ, and they're still trying to figure out how this, this works. But men are to pray. Men are to set the tone in the home as in the church. And so, men, I'm going to talk to you for a moment. We are commanded, instructed, expected to lead our families. We're expected to model godly prayers for our wives and our children. We are expected to set the tone in the gathering of the saints. This is God's design, and we'll unpack that more later. But Paul speaks of this this, as assumed. This is a given. In every place, men pray, lifting holy hands. We'll get to this more in a moment, but the emphasis is on the holy, not the hands. Hands is symbolic. If you were here last week, Jim Renahan preached out of Psalm 15. He also referenced Psalm 24. Let's look at Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. What are the hands have to do with prayer. Psalm 24, verse 3. Who shall ascend the holy hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his place? This bar is set very high. Because when we talk about salvation, there is a standard. It is God's holiness. It is his perfect righteousness. There is no standing before him. There is no standing next to him. There is no coming near him. If you are unrighteous, if you are not holy, who shall ascend? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Your hands, what, you know, the saying, you have blood on your hands, they show the condition of your heart, theologically and symbolically. The person who has clean hands and and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, who does not swear deceitfully, Dr. Renahan did a great job last week of saying, that's not us. We can't do that. But we are a people who have a Savior who went before us who can do that. And so in him, we can have clean hearts and clean hands. So men are to lead in every place, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Notice uh, there is a, a movement from the external. It's easy to distinguish a man. And the men are to set the example. There's a picture of raised hands, and now it goes into the motivations of the heart. Without anger or quarreling, without sin in their hearts. I want to look at three passages here uh, that kind of help us understand this. Mark chapter 11, verse 25. Mark eleven twenty-five. Notice the posture here. This is Jesus speaking. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. The posture of our hearts is infinitely more important than the posture of our bodies and our hands. 
And so we can't approach prayer before God if we hate our brother. This is what John says in 1 John chapter 4. Again, I, I'm using so many cross-references because I don't want you to believe me. I want you to know what the scriptures say. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God, that's what we're saying when we pray, right? That I'm going before God because I love him, because I submit to him. How can we pray and hate our brother? If anyone says he loves God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. This commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And then one more, 1 Peter chapter 3, which we'll look at uh, in every aspect this morning. But 1 Peter chapter 3, just verse 7. The prayers are brought up of men specifically. A lot of these themes are going to come up in the rest of the sermon. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. So not just how you are with your brothers and other people in the church, but men, how you are with your wives sets a witness for the rest of the church and will determine the effectiveness of your prayers. Showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, we'll deal with that later, since they are heirs with you. See, most people will focus on the weaker vessel. We focus on the heir. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So men in every place, holy hands, praying without anger or quarreling with your brother or with your spouse or with your, your children. So what can we learn from this? So clearly, holiness, love for the Lord that leads to love for our brothers should mark our prayers. This is primary. And men, it is our job to do this and to model this. What about the lifting hands part? Because for some of us, some of you, I'm not one of the us, uh, raising hands is as natural as breathing in church. Um, for some of us, it's like trying to swim underwater with a, with a scuba, without a scuba tank. Uh, it is very unnatural. It's either completely natural or it's, it's sacrilegious. We, we've come from one of, these, one of these traditions. So what do we do with these raised hands? So I want you to see that um, this is... There are many prayer postures within the scriptures. Lifting hands is very common. I, I want to look at just a few. There's one, um, one, of, one practice among many. This is for the one who is praying. So a lot of times this, this is taken that like everyone lifts their hands. I don't think anything wrong with that. But there is a, a posture of head raised, hands raised to heaven, recognizing that, that this exercise of prayer is to the God who is above me. And it is a type of submission. I want you to look at Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 9. And I'm going to be flipping through uh, a few of these. And so if you don't know where Nehemiah is, it'll be up on the screen. Nehemiah chapter 9, excuse me, verse 5. Uh, so here they are. They're um, reconsecrating the temple. They're all coming back to the land. Then the Levites. Uh, this, this list of Levites here, they say, uh, picking up halfway down in verse 5, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. 
This is one posture that is honoring to the Lord. Stand up. This is not lazy. This is joyous. This is confident. Next, lift hands, Psalm 28, verse 2. Psalm 28, verse 2, we get the, the combination of the two. Hear, my, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Psalm 121, 1. Not just stand up, not just lift up, but look up. Psalm 121, 1. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. I could go on for hours on descriptors of prayer in the Old Testament. I just want to give you a glimpse. So you've got that, this expectant, hopeful, confident posture that because I can stand before my God, he has made me one of his people, I stand before him, I look at him, and I expect and I praise him because he's a God who hears and answers prayers. But it is also appropriate to fall on your face. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 45. I love this prayer of Solomon. 1 Kings 8, 45. Is it 45? 54, that one. Now Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord. He arose from before the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven. Is it appropriate to stand and pray? Absolutely. Is it appropriate to open your eyes? Absolutely. Is it appropriate to fall on your face, be on your knees? Absolutely. We must be aware, though, of our heart intention in this. Because it can easily become a way to show off how holy you are. I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15. Because looking holy on the outside does not mean that your intentions are righteous. There are plenty of problems within Judea and Jerusalem in Isaiah. But look at what they're, what they're accused of in verse 15. When you spread out your hands, God is assuming that they are praying publicly in the sight of all with their hands spread. I will hide my eyes from you, says the Lord. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. Here's the connection between the hands and the heart. Jesus also tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Where he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So what do we do with this? Uh, and I'll be honest, I, no one knows where the kind of head, head closed, eye, or eyes closed, head down posture came from. It's not a bad thing. It's, it's a humbling ourselves before God. Uh, but I think we've been trained to think that this is the only proper way to pray. Um, so, you know, does it mean that there's a specific posture? Do we read this and say, well, if I'm not standing in a particular way, if my hands are in a particular way, if I do this versus this, that God won't, won't honor me, or excuse me, won't, won't honor my prayers, it's, it's not glorifying to him? Or is it the internal or external posture that pleases our Lord? Is he looking at the position of our hands, or is he looking at our heart? 
Can we honor God with our hands in the air or our hands in our pockets? We better be able to say yes to both. And we remember that we pray through our mediator, not through our method. We pray through our mediator, not through our method. I had to share this with you. Uh, one of my professors at RTS uh, asked me, do you know what a, what a Presbyterian uh, charismatic is? And he was, he was Presbyterian. So um, anytime your hands come above your waist, you've, you've now spotted a Presbyterian charismatic. For some of you who grew up that way, you can, that, that, that is hilarious. I have Presbyterian friends. It's okay. All right. So let us, let us continue on. Let's not get stuck in those, um, those kind of categories where this is pleasing to God and, and uh, this isn't. Um, we probably should be raising our hands in prayer more. Um, all right. Let's continue on. First Timothy verse 9 now. So begins with likewise. What's the likewise tell us? Likewise also. Is it the same exact instructions? Women, you do exactly what men do. No. In every place, there's a similar concern for holiness. There's a different direction, but the same devotion. It's the, the, the heart, the internal notice, how the, the flow for the women does the same thing. It starts with the external and moves to the internal. The internal must be in agreement with the external. The outward must agree with the inward. This is likewise. This orderly worship, this concern for holiness in the corporate gathering is the same for men and women. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves. Let's talk about this word adorn for a moment. Uh, it can be translated to clothe, uh, but it, it really means to be put in order, to beautify. And so notice here, it doesn't say if women adorn themselves. It assumes that women will adorn themselves. It doesn't say if women will adorn themselves, but how you should adorn yourself. So ladies, you don't have to feel guilty that the Lord has made you to desire beauty. It's a good thing. We, and I told you when we were in, in Proverbs, I said, remember everything we're saying in the last three weeks going through Proverbs 31 for 1 Timothy. Now here we are. Remember Lady Wisdom. She's dressed in scarlet. All of her children are wearing purple. She, Lady, um, or excuse me, the, the excellent wife at the end who's also Lady Wisdom. In uh, Lady Wisdom, she lays out this, this beautiful feast she has made bread. She has made her own wine. She has prepared her home. She makes things orderly and beautiful. That is godly. And you don't have to train a little girl to do this. If you've met Anna Grace, I know her parents. I know them kind of well. Um, and they did not teach her to, to love purses and, and princesses. This is, this is wired within little girls. And she knows that I feel a certain way when I have my nails painted and I, and, and I put on a dress. And we teach little girls that beauty is a good thing. Vanity is not. Beauty is God-honoring. Vanity is man-honoring. That is what he's speaking about here. Likewise, also women, adorn yourselves. Look nice, please. In respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or costly pearls, or excuse me, gold or pearls or costly attire, but with the prop, what is proper for women who possess, profess godliness with good works. All right, three things here. Number one, respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. These three words in the Greek, respectable, modesty, self-control. They are almost synonymous uh, in that they all have to do with some kind of modesty 
dealing with sexuality. There's, a, there's small variants between them. Uh, I don't need to go into them all. But you've got three synonymous words. What's that telling us? It is, it is driving home the point of modesty. I.e., you can look beautiful, but not to draw attention to yourself. Look beautiful without exalting yourself and lifting yourself up. So is, is here the, the point that your, your clothes are, are too costly? Is it the price of what you buy or what you wear, or is it why you wear it? And so that is the, the greater concern here, that your desire to please the Lord is manifested in, in, in modesty, even if you look nice and wear nice things. Number two, respectable apparel, modesty, and self-control. Number two, not with braided hair and goals or pearls or costly attire. And this has caused people a lot of fits. So, is this purely literal? Meaning, are braids, pearls, and expensive clothes sinful? Or is there a cultural meaning here? So, their day, like ours, the fashion trends were driven by the rich and the prostitutes. What was really expensive and what was really flashy. Some, it, in, in our day, there may not be much of a difference. Um, so women in those days had these outrageously ostentatious hairdos. You, you can still see um, sculptures where their, their hair is huge. It is braid upon braid upon braid, and they, they wove gems into it. They wove little, little, little gold and little shiny pieces of rock to draw attention to themselves. They were human peacocks <laughs> parading themselves around. Imagine this woman walks into church. Why does she dress like that? Because she wants every man to see her and every woman to envy her. That is what Paul is speaking about. These elaborate braids, these, these shiny things that make you the focus of everything. It's like, you know, buying clothes with the, the, the label all over it so you know how much money I spent. That is what Paul is getting at. Because remember, this is a real church. This is real people with real problems, and Paul's addressing it. And so if we assume that every braid is sinful, or if your pants cost more than this, then, then that's sinful. If you wear any jewelry, it's, it's sinful. Then we're completely ignoring their cultural context. Is that helpful? Number three, not with this, but with this. Verse uh, 10, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Godly women, your adorning, what is commendable, what is admirable, are works that please the Lord. Good works. Professing women, your Christ-likeness, that is beautiful. Your adorning. Now we go back to 1 Peter 3, as you can guess. Peter's saying the same exact thing here. As a witness to your husband and everyone who sees you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Same three things. Peter's having a similar image in mind. Again, not that these things are sinful, but if they become your identity, if you see them as your beauty, it is sinful. 
They become an idol, and you love them more than you love the Lord. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. What happens when your adorning is internal and hidden? Who sees it? The Lord. Where does your commendation come from? From everyone else or from him? What do we desire? To be seen as holy by the Lord or to be seen as beautiful by everyone else? Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's going to come up in a moment. Which in God's sight is very precious. We need to make sure when we read difficult text, we see what God considers precious, not what we do. For this is how, uh, we're going to stop at verse 4. All right. So, remember from our time in Proverbs. Lady Wisdom, she dresses nice. She works hard. She puts on a fantastic spread when she's hospitable. But she builds herself up. She's quiet. She's respectable. She is admirable. She is wise. But then there's Lady Folly. She steals. She seduces men in her trap. So what does godliness look like? This loud, wayward woman the attention-getting one who's ostentatious, who shows up in public worship to say, everybody look at me, or the woman who is humble and quiet and her confidence is in the Lord. And when you come into her home, she radiates godliness. Shri and I watched a documentary that was fascinating and extremely disturbing. Uh, It's called The Way Down. There's a church outside of Nashville, still in existence, uh, called Remnant Fellowship. And their pastor, her name is Glenn Shamblin. She, she, she died. I don't want to give the spoiler alert. It's fascinating. But her whole model, now there's more to that. Um, but her whole model is making women feel beautiful by losing weight. It's God's will for you to lose weight. So this woman with the biggest, most ridiculous hair you have ever seen has this superficial church wearing, living in a mansion, driving expensive cars, and wearing expensive clothes. She is teaching superficial things and leading many people astray, ultimately denying the Trinity. This woman and this church are the exact opposite of the verses that came before and the ones that are to follow. Let's look at the next verses here in 1 Timothy. As I was watching that, it just struck me like I'm that, that illustration, that church and that idea is made for this text. Let, woman, let women, verse 11, learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. The complete opposite of what we see in many loud uh, churches who are led by and driven by women. All right, so let's lean in. Verses 11 and 12, Paul says in the first two verses, there's, there's, a, there's a suggestive encouragement in verses 8 through 10. He leans in here. The language becomes a little stronger. It goes from should to must. He is insisting on holy, orderly worship, self-controlled in the gathering of the people of God, not drawing attention to themselves. So the language is strong. Let a woman... Is not a suggestion, it is a direction. And I do not permit a woman. So notice the parallels here. I do not permit a woman to teach 
or excuse me, let a woman learn quietly, paralleled with I don't permit her to teach, and let her learn with all submissiveness and not exercising authority over a man. These are reiterating the same idea twice. Not teaching, but, but, but learning. Um, being submissive, not exercising authority. So, first thing here. If you were a Jewish woman, this is not radical at all to you. You were not allowed to read, speak, or even learn in the synagogue. Here, now in Christ, women are encouraged to learn. The word disciple means learner. You're to be a, a, a quiet learner. There's an order. And this, this godly submissiveness, this, this humility, displays the beauty in which God has designed women. Uh, so there's a, a similar concern uh, for orderly worship in 1 Corinthians 14. You may have not thought I was going to go there, but we are going to go there. 1 Corinthians 14. And again, if you don't believe me, if you think that we're just old and, and old-fashioned, we are. It's okay. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. This whole chapter, this whole section is in the context of orderly worship. Why? Why does it matter who does what? Why do we put limitations and guardrails within the gathering of the saints? For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. It is God who established the order of men and women. It is God who established the order in the home and in the church. As in all the churches of the saints... This kind of sounds like a command. This kind of sounds like a pattern. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. So here's an observation. How many women are comfortable going home and asking their husband a theological question? The confusion of the role in women in churches says way more about men than it does women. Men, you need to be able to lead your, your families and instruct your wives and your children. You're to set a godly example. You are to be Christ to her. And so there is order. And there, and there, there is a pattern in which God has laid out for us. And these disruptions in Ephesus, many of them caused by women, again, we'll see in, in uh, chapter 5. But there's this, there's this transition in the early church of what do we do? The, the, uh, the uh, Jews couldn't, Jewish women couldn't speak at all. The, uh, the uh, Gentile women were a lot more out front, were a lot more boisterous. And so, but now we have freedom in Christ and now we're all equal before him. What do we do in the church? So Paul gives some directions. I'll lean into this a little bit more as we move into verse 12. So verse 12. Uh, basically takes the, the uh, theory in verse 11 and puts it into practice in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach. Or, what do you mean, Paul? Verse 12. I do not put a, permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So let me give you the cultural explanation and the biblical exegesis of this passage. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. That's what it means. I wasn't meant to be funny. I mean, it's, I think every time someone reads this, I'm like, well, it can't really mean that. It must mean something else. There, there's there's got to be some kind of caveat. There's, there's got to be some kind of cultural situation that explains that away. No. 
and he's going to give his reason in just a moment. Has, but before we get there, we must be able to say this because many of you have had conversations with many of your friends who say, well, you Christians are just backwards and you, and you hate women. This has nothing to do with the value and dignity and equality of women. Let's look at Galatians 3. Galatians 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The most important phrase in that entire verse is not male, female, Jew, Greek. It is in Christ Jesus. And so the divisions that the world wants to put on us as far as status and value and dignity and importance are gone. Because in Christ, you are a new creation. And in him, you are equal. This also doesn't mean that women have nothing to offer within a body. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Paul again, writing to the church in Philippi, I entreat Eodea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers who na- whose names are written in the book of life. It, what is greater is not that you stand up here and preach or that you are given an office of authority. What is the greatest gift God has given to anyone is that our names are written in the book of life. And Paul encourages these women as fellow workers. It doesn't mean that women can't teach. It doesn't mean that women have nothing to offer theologically. Timothy himself owes his faith to his grandmother and his mother. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. I am reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first with your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. How much a role do you think his grandmother and mother had in his sincere faith? Praise the Lord for godly grandmothers and mothers who raise up faithful elders. It does not mean that a woman is not of equality, does not mean that women have nothing to offer, doesn't mean that women can't teach, but it does mean In these two areas, the authority of the doctrine and administration of the family and the church is reserved for men. This is out of God's design, as we'll get into more, and this becomes abundantly clear when the office of elder and deacon come right after this admonition for order in the church. But if you've been here for more than one week, Our women have so much to offer theologically, you just listen to them pray. You come into a Bible study, you listen to them answer questions. I would put our women against most so-called pastors in the nation because we spend time in the Word. We instruct each other. We build everyone up, male or, or, or female. And I love the witness that our women have, their confidence and their dignity in the Lord. And when needed to, they will pull out their sword and cut you in half. Amen. So why is this brought up? Why even bring this up? Why does it even matter? Because when you arrogantly distort the created order, when you defy God's design, it leads to disorder in society 
and in the church. I want to look at Isaiah chapter 3. Remember, I told you there's a lot of problems in Isaiah. We already looked at their bloody hands. He won't listen to their, their, their prayers. Here's the condemnation against them. Your leaders are like children, and your women are leading you astray. So Isaiah chapter 3, verse 9. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. You've got arrogance and sin. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they, eat, uh, they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them, for with what his hands have dealt out shall surely be done to him. My people, infants are your oppressors, meaning you've got childish men who are leading you. You've got men who can't even tie their shoes and you're trusting them to, and they're oppressing you. And women rule over you. This is not to your glory that you have no godly men to lead you. And they have swallowed up the course of your paths. He goes on to say, what, what is marking these women of Jerusalem? The daughters of Zion. Go down to verse 16. And the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and they walk with outstretched necks, they're glancing wantonly with their eyes, they're mincing along as they go, they're tinkling with their feet. I don't know what that means, but it sounds sultry. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. That's not good. And the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. Ouch. And that day the Lord will take away the finery of their ankles, anklets, their headbands, and their crescents. These are all worship adornments of false gods. The pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings, and the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Here's the other thing. In these cultic practices, these gods want you to draw attention to yourself. So these temple prostitutes, those who work at the, the, the altars of these false gods, they would dress themselves up. So not only are you looking like a prostitute and a rich woman, but you are looking like an idolatrous adulteress. This should not be for the people of God. How often do we read the scriptures and the wives and the concubines of the kings draw them apart? Solomon prays this great prayer on his knees and is led away by women. Herod kills John the Baptist because Herodias manipulates his heart and his desire and his lust for a little girl. Self-serving, superficial women lead men into ungodliness. This is why this is brought up. And I'm, it is sad, and I'm saying this anecdotally, but in our church, every instance of division or deception was women being led astray by empathy, vanity, or discontentment. Everyone. Everyone, we've had either women leave others astray or women gather together, be upset. Their husbands don't know how to lead, and it causes ripples of destruction in the body. Some of you have been a part of that. Most of you have never seen it. Praise God, and I hope you never do. So when Peter says that women are the weaker vessel, 
Let's talk about that for a moment. I love Josh's analogy that he used about two different vessels. Uh, I'm going to switch one to a thermos because I think it's more appropriate. Um, so a thermos and a wine glass both hold liquid. But a thermos is like a man. You can, he, can, he can take a lot more heat. You can throw him down the, the mountain. He'll, he'll tumble over and over and nothing will get spilled. A wine glass is more beautiful and it is dignified and it is gentle, but it is weaker. And so we must know both our vessels that are used for goodness, that God uses in his purposes, but you have to know which one you use and which one you, you drink out of. And as I said earlier, the role of women in the church says way more about the men than it does the women. When women lead the church, it's because men have failed, and that church will fail. And the women in here are nodding their heads. When a woman leads the family, it's because the man has failed, and that family will struggle. Seems strong to modern ears. We're not done yet. What is Paul's evidence for saying this? Verse 13. Verse 13. For, Paul gives us purpose. Paul gives us his, his theological and historical grounding for all of this. For, here's my support. What we need to know about men and women is rooted in what? The creation order. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. One formed to lead, one formed to follow. This is not competitive. This is complementary. This is not just for them, but it is the design for all of humanity. And God said, this is very good. Notice the pattern here. Verse 13, creation. Verse 14, fall. Verse 15, redemption. This is telling a gospel redemptive tale about men and women as the basis for how men and women uh, work and um, complement one another in the church. Creation in 13, fall in 14, 15 is redemption. So we, we got creation. We read Genesis 2 earlier. Let's look at verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became, became a, a transgressor. Wait a second. Adam wasn't deceived. I think I remember the story, and I think I remember Adam ate it too. Here's the problem. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. He knew it was wrong. Adam wasn't deceived by what God said. His wife was deceived, and he didn't lead. His wife taught. He didn't teach. Let's look there, Genesis chapter 3. I want you to see what's, what's going on here. Why does Paul say women should not teach or exercise authority over a man? And then he references Eve being deceived. Look at what she's doing in chapter 3. Chapter 3, we all know this, but notice what's going on here. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did not God actually say, you shall not eat any tree of the garden? Notice, what's he doing here? He's opening up a theological conversation. Did not God say, Eve, you're a good theologian. Let's talk. Did not God actually say, you shall not eat any tree of the garden? 
And the woman engages. She begins to learn from the enemy. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not... um, Yeah, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent, he's a great debater, said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she wanted to be God. And she sat in, in Satan's anthropology class. Satan's theology class twisted her own, um, her own nature and the nature of God. And she ate it. She took it. She also gave some to her husband, who was silent, by the way. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Remember earlier, we ended on verse 25. They were naked and unashamed. Now they're naked and ashamed, and they sewed fig leaves together. That was her problem. She desired to be like God. She takes on the role of, uh, of theologian, and so part of her curse is that you're not allowed to teach. And also remember that because Adam fail, fell and failed to lead, he now becomes the head of us all. He becomes the head of a covenant of dead people, of sinners, He was supposed to be Adam, the federal head of of mankind, and now he is, but he's the federal head of their sin. But there's good news. Let's jump to verse 15, back in 1 Timothy. She was deceived. She became the transgressor in her leading. She led us all into sin, but notice, she's not blamed throughout the rest of Scripture. It's Adam. The responsibility is with Adam. He failed as leader. He failed as authority. He failed as teacher. Verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is one of the hardest, if not the hardest verses to translate in all of Scripture. Um, But I think if we use the text that we're dealing with, as context, and the referential text. So there is a, a, a referent, what he's looking back to. So we must look in the context of 1 Timothy 2 and Genesis 2 and 3 to get our interpretation. So let's continue on in Genesis 3. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Who's the she? Based on context, you can say it out loud, who's the she? Eve. If we, we keep ourselves in Genesis 2 and 3, this is not talking about women, women, you can only be saved if you bear a child. Some people read with that interpretation and throw out the entire book. We must know the context. And what does Genesis 3, same context, have to say about childbearing? Verse 15. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So when, when childbearing gets introduced, first the, the serpent is, is cursed, but there's a promise made to that serpent and to the woman. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
When the first time the woman is mentioned in Genesis 3, there's a promise. Yes. Because he goes on in verse 16. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. It's not going to be easy, but there's a promise. Because through childbearing, through children, there's going to be one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. There's going to be one who comes who will make all this right. Everything that you messed up, I'm going to use you to bring about redemption. The promise comes out of her failing. There is, this, there is beauty in the role given to women in childbearing and motherhood, but there are consequences to sin. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Bearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Feminism says to women that you don't have value unless you do everything that a man does. You look like him, you talk like him, you do all the same things. If you, you don't have value, if you don't have a job and you get out into the workplace, feminism is playing on this desire and rule tension in Genesis 3.16. It is feeding into the sinful result of playing God and telling you that, that you are less if you're not like him. But notice, Adam was made first, then Eve, and they were in perfect harmony before sin. This is God's design, and all of these things that come out of it, these are consequences of sin. But we are to remember the promise. We look to Adam and Eve and their, their failings, but we also remember the promise. Because there is one who will come. Through childbearing, Mary becomes the second Eve. Let's look at Galatians 4. Hope you don't mind. I'm going to go a little long, but I want to make sure we cover all this. Josh, we know. (laughs) But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Here's a little theology lesson. What comes after sin? The law. Because of sin, we need law. Because we're we're sinners, we we need boundaries. We need direction. We need consequences. And so one must be born under the law because we deserve the law. And so salvation comes through a woman. Not by a woman, but through a woman. The, the promise that through childbearing there will be salvation, there's one. That is why Jesus had to come and be born of a woman and to live at the time when the law was still in place so that he could live perfectly under it, so that he could keep it in a way that Adam never could or no other man before him ever could. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So that, purpose again, we might receive adoption as sons. Notice, this is not sons and daughters. This is sons. Because in that culture, only a son could receive an inheritance. Only a son would get a part of the family land and the family treasure. In Christ Jesus. Remember, just a few verses before, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Ladies, in Christ Jesus, you are a son. You have all of the inheritance and the right 
and the privilege. There is no distinction. There is no separation in glory and dignity and worth. There isn't role. But notice, in Christ Jesus, he redeemed us all if our trust is in him. And because you were sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now we go full circle. We began in prayer. We see prayer here again. We can't talk to the Father without the Son. We don't know what to say without the Spirit. And it would not happen if childbearing did not come through women or through a woman. Make sense? So for those of you who are here this morning, if you are in Christ Jesus, take heart. We have a great mediator. We can go to him at any time with anything, and the Spirit helps us to pray to our Abba, Father. But if you are here this morning and you are trusting in anything else, if you are standing in your own righteousness, if you are like Eve in the garden, hearing all this and saying, did God really say? The curse of Adam, the curse of Adam still remains on you. You will have one of two men to represent you. Either Adam, who represents all who have died and will ever die, or Christ, who represents those who live. I pray that you put your trust in Christ. I pray that you put your hope in him, because he's the mediator from earlier. He's the savior, the redemption that comes through the woman. He's the hope of all mankind, male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. And so that is how we read this final line here in verse 15. It goes from singular, she will be saved through childbearing. The, the act of Eve will be redeemed when Christ comes if they, speaking to all women now, and all, continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the woman from verse 10, the godly woman who adorns herself with good works. This is not what saves you. This is what shows your salvation. The Son came that we might be faithful, that we might be loving, that we might be holy, and we might be self-controlled. And when all is said and done, when we worry about the order, also in 1 Corinthians, I'm going to leave you with 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12 puts this all into perspective. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So just quickly here, my, I want to leave you with this. My hope in going through all this, and this is not a typical sermon, but I really wanted to dig in here. Hopefully this was helpful. Um, but my desire here is that we see God's design and God's order in the home and in the church as our, for our good and for our flourishing. And we also see that there are consequences to our sin. We are still dealing with the consequences of Adam's sin and Eve's sin. But that when we read the scriptures, we learn to discern the, the cultural commentary from what is inherent, the, the, the principles within the text. So that when we gather in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we honor him. And everything we do is according to his name that glorifies him and that we're not 
distracted or caught up on these external things, whether we raise our hands or not. And we focus on being in Christ because it is Christ who saves, not these cultural uh, expressions. Faith, love, holiness, humility are what mark Christ's bride in all ages and all places. And the character of our heart dictates what we do with our hands and our hair, not the reverse. Let's pray. And I am going to pray Solomon's prayer from 1 Kings chapter 8. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as it is this day.